Well, good morning. Glad that you guys are all here. Hope you had a good uh, Hoop Fest weekend. I know that was last weekend. And uh, Iron Man, you know, for uh, some of you guys and gals who did that or volunteered, thank you for doing so. Uh, thanks for praying for me. Getting better all the time. Yes, uh, my wife and doctor, yes, in that order, has told me I need to sit again this weekend. So that's why if you see me sitting on my hands, that's an indication that I want to stand up. But uh, that's my little cue to keep uh, do, trying to do that. Uh, I want to remind you again, DNA classes you just heard, you know, from there. Please uh, show up. Love to, love to see you there. I'm going to be there one to three. Child care is provided. I also want to remind you to keep praying for our middle school camp. Uh, Their camp started on Thursday. It ends uh, tomorrow, Monday. And so last night, I got a, a text from Emma, you know, who leads our middle school ministry. And she said last night is, uh, was their decision night. And so she said, please feel free to share you know, with the congregation that uh, yesterday, out of our church alone, we had 17 first-time decisions and 62 recommitments last night you know, for Jesus. Isn't that awesome? So God is at work, and uh, so keep praying for them. They got rested today, and they will be traveling back tomorrow, so just pray for safe travels for that. So welcome to week two, you know, of what we were calling Uncommon. And the reason we're looking at this series and calling this is we're looking at a group of people uh, from a couple thousand years ago in a city called Corinth at a brand new church that got started, and they're being called by Paul, who is the writer of this and the starter of that church, to live Uncommon. To not live like the world lives, but to live in a different way. And last week, you know, I started by looking at uncommon animals, you know, in our world. And so today, in, in light of uh, celebration of our car show, uh, I want us to look at the five uh, most rarest or the rarest uh, most uncommon modern day cars. Okay, modern day cars. So those of you who are car lovers, uh, number five uh, is a Bugatti. I'm not going to even try to pronounce the rest of it. Uh, There's only one of these, you know, made in the entire world. Uh, It's to celebrate the brand's 110th anniversary. It is handcrafted and only took two and a half years to make. So that is the Bugatti. How about uh, the Regera? You know, there's only 80 of them in the world. It's one of the most exotic powertrains ever deployed in a car. A five-liter twin-turbo V8 paired with three electric motors with a combined output of 1,500 horsepower. It goes from zero to 250 miles per hour in 31.5 seconds. And I have no idea what I just told you, but it sounds impressive. Okay, so very, very cool, you know, kind of vehicle. How about the Ferrari F60 America? There's only 10 of them that were ever made. It was to celebrate the brand's 60 years in North America and save your pennies. It only cost $2.5 million, you know, so a really cheap vehicle there. Uh, then there's the Rolls-Royce uh, swept tail. Uh, there's only one of them that was actually made, you know, in the world, and it just looks cool. And then there's the Bugatti Devo, you know, um, also called the Ladybug. There's only 40 of them. Uh, it isn't just fast, but it's one of the most extremely aerodynamic cars that has ever been built. Now, do you want to know what's also rare and also uncommon? The perfect church. Okay, uh, literally in 1996, I was in Atlanta, Georgia, I got a chance to go to the Olympics, and as we were driving, uh, I literally saw this. <laughs> yes, Google it yourself, still exists, stills around. I don't think anybody attends it, because as soon as somebody attends it, it no longer becomes the perfect church. 
And so uh, there's no such thing as a perfect church. There's, there's no such thing as, as uh, finding, you know, perfect people everywhere. Uh, in fact, as we looked last week, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in Corinth, and he wanted to make sure they understand who they were, their identity in Christ, uh, 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 that that's not going to change regardless of what they've done or what they're going to do. And so he's finding a way to encourage them, to bless them, to show them the faithfulness of God regardless of the circumstance. And now... He's going to spend the rest of the book challenging them on being more uncommon. Uh, Because what they're doing is they're finding themselves, like a lot of churches have done since that time, uh, not much different than the world. Like a lot of the things that are happening in their city is also taking place in their church. And Paul says, hey, we're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. We're supposed to, you know, uh, love the world and encourage the world and not disassociate or judge the world. That's God's job. We are supposed to, though, look different, act different, and be different. We're supposed to be uncommon. And that's what he's challenging them with, which I think is why it's so important for today, because that known world was under you know, the empire of Rome, and they call America modern-day Rome. So there's a lot of similarities. So with that, what I didn't mention last week is I want to describe to you the city, the city of Corinth just a little bit. It's located in south-central of what we would know as modern-day Greece. Okay? The, the, it was the capital city of that region called Achaia, Uh, It was so important of a business center and a city center. In fact, it had two harbors. Uh, The harbor on the east coast was only four miles from the harbor on the west coast. Now, today, if you go to the same part of where Corinth used to exist, there is a canal that joins the two harbors. Think modern-day Panama. You know, the Panama Canal, except it was only four miles wide. But in Paul's day, they would actually manually pull the boats from one end of the harbor to the other end of the harbor because it was only four miles. The reason they did that is because if they didn't get ships from one side to the other via land, they'd have to take 200-mile journey that would be really treacherous, you know, and really dangerous. So they said this is much more economic, which meant it became an incredibly diverse area. So tons of people from all over the world would come into Corinth, specifically in this area. Uh, There were Romans, because it was a Roman colony, Jews, people from Asia and the Far East. There were rich people, poor people, men, women, old, young, and many, many slaves that actually made up this region. Now, in addition, for it being a business center, uh, there were some other things that made Corinth famous, even world famous. Like, for example, pottery and the Corinthian brass. Uh, it was really, really famous. You can still even see some of that today. It's a mixture of gold, silver, and copper. Uh, they were famous for their athletic events. I know the Olympic Games gets all the pub, but the Isthmian Games, you know, actually were the second most popular in the known world. It would happen outside of Poseidon's temple, and it would actually happen, you know, worldwide every two years. Now, there were also many gods that they worshipped. And they, had, they, they always wanted to be a center where, hey, whatever your God is, come to Corinth. Because this is a place where you're going to worship your God as well. And so they had Athena, Apollo, Poseidon, Hermes, Serapis, among many others. But their most prominent and their most famous God was one you've probably heard of, Aphrodite. Aphrodite had a major temple there who had more than 1,000 female prostitutes and priestesses at their service on a regular basis. So the Corinthian people actually were known, uh, had a reputation, you know, like how cities gain reputations, you know, in our country as well. And uh, they were known for partying, for drunkenness, and for any sexual behavior was all welcome there. Uh, 
In fact, uh, the term in the Roman Empire was to live like a Corinthian. In our day, this is what we say. What happens in Vegas, let us stay in Vegas, right? So that's one way to kind of visualize what's taking place in Corinth. Now, the reason I give you all of that is, again, that's their city. That's their community. So Paul, you're going to see over the next several chapters, is addressing a lot of these things that were coming into the church and to the people of God. So he has to keep addressing them and say, no, 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 don't do that. Do this because this is more makes you uncommon and separates you now that you're followers of Jesus Christ. So with that said, here's what Paul starts with. So he starts by, again, last week, if you missed it, talks about encouraging and who they are. But then he says, here's the issue. And usually in writers in the New Testament, the first issue they hit is the most important. You know, just like, you know, sometimes in sermons, I have to hit you guys early on because you lose attention as we keep going along. So they're doing the same thing. He's trying to get their attention, trying to help them understand. And he spends three chapters on the same thing. So it lets us know it's important. This is what he says in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Chloe's household have told me about your quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. So what he's saying is that be uncommon. What's going to make you different than the rest of the world in which you live is you're going to be united. There's not going to be divisions. Because I don't know if you've noticed, it's a hard time for most of us to get along with other people, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I have a hard time getting along with myself at times, let alone people in my house, people in my neighborhood, people in my city, people, yes, in our church. We have a hard time. Why? Because we all come from different thoughts, ideas, perspectives, backgrounds. And with those thoughts, ideas, opinions, perspectives, and backgrounds, what Paul is saying is that the church, the people, should be the one place where we can all get together. Where we can all be unified, even though we come from different thoughts, ideas, backgrounds, perspectives, that we can come together with unity. That's what should separate us from the rest of the world. In fact, a lack of unity is what destroys churches from within. This is what happens. Study church history, and you'll notice, and I hear this today. Oh my gosh, Dan, look at the world that's going crazy. The world's going nuts. Look at our backyard. Jesus must be coming. The world's going, going crazy. Here's what you need to understand. The church does not dissolve or get demolished by outside forces. In fact, even when there's persecution of the church, history tells us the church actually gets stronger. And persecution. Where the church is fold is from within. It's where people take issues that are divisive, opinion-oriented, and they create issues through gossip, slander, malicious talk, bad behavior, and all of a sudden the church loses its power. Now, not only does the apostle Paul know this, but Jesus knew this. I, I've said this before. If you were Jesus, and you were going to pray for people who are going to be around thousands of years after you, what would you pray for? I'm thinking, if I'm in Jesus' shoes, I, I pray for faith. I pray for perseverance. I pray for commitment. That's not what Jesus prayed for. And we read in John chapter 17, when Jesus is about to be ready to go to the cross, he prays for his followers. He prays for his disciples. But then he prays for you. And he prays for me. Notice, of all the things that he would pray for, 
that he says this is going to be of critical importance. In John chapter 17, Jesus says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one. Be one. Just as you are in me and I, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Cross this up a second. Jesus wants us to be so connected, so united, in the same way that he's connected with the Father in heaven. That kind of deep, intimate connection. Why? So that the world sees something different. That the world notices, you know what? None of us can get along with hardly anything, but why do those people who have different backgrounds as well, different workplaces, different ethnicities, different genders, and yet they seem to get along? Why is that? Well, I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity again that the world will know that you sent me. Proof that Jesus came to this earth is going to be demonstrated by how well we get along in the church and that you love them as much as you love me. Now, let me be clear. There is a huge difference between unity and uniformity. Okay, because sometimes people think unity as if you have to agree with everything that's said. You can't have your difference of opinion. You all have to dress, look, and act exactly the same. That's just not true. Uh, Unity is Christian unity is the result of God bringing together people of different ethnicities, backgrounds, and social classes into one family, or the Bible says body, by faith with a focus on Jesus Christ. That's what unity looks like. Uniformity, like I said, is like robots. You look, talk, act, and think all the same all the time. In fact, having different churches, some people have said, is one of the reasons that we can prove that, the, that, that we are not united. Actually, different churches is actually good. Different churches reach different people. You ever notice that? In different cities. Don't believe me? Go back and read the New Testament. There were different churches who had different issues and different emphasis. As long as they focused on Christ, they reached different people for different reasons. And there's things that would need to happen in Uganda. They're going to be different than it happens in America, and that's okay. As we continue to fulfill the mission of Jesus Christ. But if those churches were because of divisiveness, and that's how church plants or that was born, that's where it becomes a, an issue. Now, If you look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, Paul says it this way, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all of you have been united with Christ in baptism. And now you've put on Christ. This is the unifier. You've put on Christ now. It's like putting on new clothes. So what he says is that there's now no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, people have mistranslated that. It says, what do you mean? There's no men men and women anymore? No, there are still men and women. You know, that's not what he's saying there. What he's saying is, that's not the divisive issue. We are uniting under something greater and more important because this is what Jesus wants us to be about. Now, Paul's going to clarify in the next several chapters, never demanding everyone to agree with whomever is in charge. In all cases, that's not what he's saying. Nor is he teaching that believers can never disagree about something. The standard here is not to reach perfect conformity, only to reach perfect unity. Disagreement does not have to mean division. Okay, I want to make sure that set, sets the ground. Now, St. Augustine, you know, uh, said it this way, uh, one of the famous theologians, in essentials, unity the things that are most essential about Christ, our connection with him, salvation. In non-essentials, 
things that are important, but they're not essentials to our connection with God and with one another that would break apart because of divisiveness. Let's have some liberty. Let's have some differences of thought and opinion, but in all things, let's make sure we're loving. All things that we're love so that we don't create division in the church. So let's press into this just a little bit more. The elevation of preference over unity hurts relationships and hinders God's work in and through churches. You can see this in your marriage. You can see this in your relationships at work. And yes, you can see this in the church. Most church splits are not over the essentials. They're over someone's heightened preference of what they think should take place. And because they're not doing it their way, then they're going to go try to find a church or another group of people that does it that way. That's where you see things happen more and more often. And then they create division in the middle of it or on their way out. So let's go back to Corinth. What's Corinth's issue? Uh, in context, this Corinth is the very next verse the Apostle Paul addresses is in verse 12. Okay, so very next verse. Some of you are saying, I am a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. Paul's like, are you freaking kidding me? What is wrong with you people? I started this on the basis of Christ and now you're aligning yourself under a preference of a leader and creating divisiveness over your following that leader who never wanted you to create that divisiveness in the first place. Whether it be Apollos, who was an eloquent speaker, great, great speaker orator. Whether it was Paul, who maybe didn't have those kinds of gifts, or, or Peter himself, who obviously seemed to have that connection personally with Christ. And then other people like, we're none of those things, we're Christ only. And you're like, okay, what in the world is going on? Now, let me be clear. Paul is not saying that you can't have preferences. All right, let's go to our church for a second. No one's saying that you can't like one speaker over another. I have heard from some of you how much you love it when Steve Allen or Tyler speaks. All right, is that Steve? Steve, are you, you got your fan club going on here? There's nothing wrong. You know, I could even tell you in my own household, Trevor is the most popular speaker. They're like, you're speaking again? When is Trevor going to speak? I want to know when Trevor speaks. And so that's my, own that's my own family, okay? So I totally get it. There's nothing wrong with having a preference. It only gets divisive. When we say that we don't want to listen unless that person is speaking. When we don't want to worship unless my favorite song is being sung. And then we begin to tell other people about that. And then all of a sudden these little factions come up. And then all of a sudden it creates, unintentionally usually at first, divisiveness. So let's go a little bit deeper with us, right? Because that's what he's hitting there. And he spends, like I said, a few chapters going through this. So let's go back just to our country. just a couple years, uh, you know, that we've seen that, that across denominations. How about translations of the Bible? Okay, in the last 50 years, that's been a big deal. You know, uh, I've heard people say, I can't go to church that doesn't use the King James Version, the New King James Version, the NIV Version. I mean, what kind of crazy church uses the NLT Version of all places? And so we see this as a preference. It's a preference issue. 
See, the issue is, are we in God's word? That should be the issue. But then we elevate a preference. And so when people went in 1984 to the NIV because they thought it was a better translation for the modern day vernacular versus the King James version, it wasn't like they were saying it's bad. They were just saying, here's an opportunity to engage in the mission of Jesus. But there were many people in churches that like, are you kidding me? I am out. And I'm going to make a big stink on the way out. I'll just use my own home church as an example. I'm nine years old at the time. 1984 version comes out. My dad was a pastor, smaller church, and he introduces the NIV to the church for those very reasons. And he walks through, this is why we've done background and understand it's a great translation, blah, 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 blah. Well, there are people who are angry. And I remember holding his hand as he's greeting people on the way out. And there was literally a lady who came up and was, was shook the King James Version in my dad's face and said, I will never be coming to this church again. I hope nobody else comes to this church. And he says, why is that? And he says, she said, if this Bible is good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. And she walked out. Right? Those of you who don't know, uh, the Bible wasn't written in King James. Uh, Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, you know, if you want to really get serious, you know, then let's bring the Hebrew Bible out and start shaking it. You know, Latin was next, you know, and then it kind of goes from there. And, and, and so the point, it wasn't, now again, don't mishear me. Nobody's criticizing the King James Version. No, nobody should do that because that was a version that helped people come to faith. And if that's where you best connect to God, you should be using that version in your time with him or any version that helps you grow in him. What becomes divisive is when you say, if it's only this version or I'm out, then we missed the whole point, and divisiveness comes in. Uh, how about the worship wars from the 80s and 90s? Oh, that was a big one. Still is today, to some extent. This was when uh, uh, contemporary music versus hymns. You know, I grew up on hymns. You know, I told you, I teethed on the pew, so I understand church and church history, okay? I get it, you know? So I, we had the booklets and went through all those different ones. Phenomenal, awesome. But then all of a sudden, another generation comes up, says, hey, we'd like to worship God this way. Just like some of the hymns that we sang were also contemporary when they first came out, but we won't go into that. You know, it was contemporary for us. Now, why is it important? Because we know when you were a child at camps and at churches, this connected you to the heart of God. Awesome. But let's not create division, which is what happened in churches that says, you know what? I am going to ask that the music person get fired and I'm going to, you know, create division and divisiveness and gossip and slander in the church because we're moving from one style to another. Isn't the point worship, whether it's a style or not? Because here's what I can promise you. The hymns that Jesus talks about that he sang between the Garden of Gethsemane and, you know, from, from the upper room to Garden of Gethsemane was not in our hymn book. It just wasn't, you know, but we read hymns. Oh, see, there, there is what it is. Now, again, nobody's criticizing hymns. I love hymns personally. But as we continue to grow and change, we continue to say, you know what? It's about the worship of God. All right. So how about we get a little closer to home? Here are some divisions that we've seen at Valley Real Life. Now, isn't this going to be fun? It's going to get a little tense in here for everybody. <laughs> These are some preferences that actually have created division over the time. So since we were talking about worship, uh, here's one of them, volume. Volume of the worship, you know, has created some pain. And I get it. You know, we've had complaints to be the volume is, is here and the volume, you know, is just, is just not good. We don't complain in the movie theaters, but we do complain here, you know, over the same volume or less. Now, at the same time, you should express these things and you should do it in a loving way. You know, which is why, 
the worship team is constantly, constantly trying to tweak and trying to do that. Most of you didn't even realize that even over the last four weeks, there's brand new sound panels all over the walls around you. It's an attempt for them to continue to try to tweak and try to get to a point where most everyone, it's never going to appease everyone. I can tell you that 100%. I can promise you. I used to be at a church where the decimal system was 20 degrees lower and people still complained about the volume, okay? So you're never going to be able to do it because we're not driven by somebody's preference. At the same time, we want to honor, respect, and hear people's preference, but do we make it divisive? That's the question. Express the opinion, but don't make it divisive. Now, <laughs> I do have to bring up one comment. Probably going to get me in trouble. But we did get a comment from someone who said they were leaving our church and they didn't like the volume of the sermon outdoors. So we have speakers and right now, as I'm speaking, the sermon is kind of broadcast as you come in, and it is outdoors. There's outdoor speakers. And <laughs> so the person said they're leaving, and we asked why, and they said, because the ducks are getting scared. <laughs> so, so I thought, well, what if the ducks need Jesus? You know, this is their only chance to hear the message, you know, of being, and I know it, I just created division from the stage, and I should, I should be out, but that one, that one made me laugh, you know, and, and anyway, so I'm going to get in trouble for that, sorry elders, okay, uh, how about this one, this one is more, a little more recent, women in ministry, ooh, it got quiet, how about having a woman to preach on Mother's Day, so contrary to two passages in scripture, and I can understand the perspective of scripture, which you should ask questions of leadership when you sense that leadership is not following God's word. But there's a way to do it that can bring unity or understanding, or there's a divisive way where you blast on social media and you never want to follow through with a sit down to try to say, are we following what God's word actually has to say? And so we want to walk through that because we want to be a biblical church, but how we create those conversations can bring divisiveness or disunity or an agree to disagree. And it's still okay even to move on from churches. There's nothing wrong with that. But how we do it is what Paul is addressing here. Oh, how about this one? Uh, where you believe or I believe money should be spent to this church. Ooh, that's always a good one. You know, every time that there is a capital project, there are people who disagree with the capital project. How dare we build an indoor playground, an expanded lobby? Do you understand what that money could go for when it comes to the poor? That's very, very, very real. Those are very tension-oriented questions. Those are very, very good questions for us to be able to walk through. But we need to ask the question, why behind the what? We obviously need to be about poor people for 100% as a church. If we're not, something's wrong with us. But do you know what's more important than actually poor people? People coming to faith in Jesus. Whether they're poor, whether they're rich, whether they have much, whether they have little, are we helping people find and follow Jesus? So the why is behind the what? You should be able to do both. You know, like for example, Uganda does not need an indoor playground. I've talked to Ronald. He doesn't need one. <laughs> what they needed was homes for widows. And so we jumped up and stepped up in that. Why? Because it perpetuates the message of Jesus Christ. It always comes back to Jesus Christ. Is it about Jesus Oh, how about preaching style? Verse by verse versus topical. Oh, I always get this there once in a while. You know, are we going verse by verse or are we doing topical? 
what, what I do appreciate, you know, is none of you who email me when we are going through verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians and say thank you. Um, well, I hear it on the other side, you know, as well. But we do, we recognize when we hear we've got to know God's word. So what do we do? We do verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We've gone through 33 books in the Bible so far, but it just seems to happen Monday to Thursday, 830 to 845 through devotionals. So we understand that, but do we create division? It's okay to have differences of opinion, but it does it create divisiveness. Church leadership, how about when church leadership changes? You know, when somebody used to lead it a certain way and somebody else comes in and you're like, ooh, I don't like the way they lead. Now, if they're in sin, let's talk about it. Matthew 18 tells us how to walk through sin issues when it comes to leadership and we need to address that with people. But preferences is what we usually hear. I don't like their style. I don't like what they're doing or how they're doing it. And you create divisiveness in your own life group, in your own home, in your own community over a preference. Or lastly, COVID, my favorite, my favorite. Because the one thing we all can agree on is politics, right? You know, that's the one thing church people are going to say, you know what, we're not going to make this a divisive issue. Boy, was I wrong, right? We went through that, just a mask. Everybody had a very strong opinion, and yes, it was an opinion, even backed by Scripture, right? If you don't make people wear masks, if you don't check their vaccine cards, then you do not love your neighbor as yourself. That was a group of people. And if you make people wear masks, you know, and you do check the card, then you're giving in to the tyranny of the government. What's wrong with you? Don't you want to follow Jesus? And so you're like, oh, can't win either way, mask or no mask. People are going to be really offended. Now, that's okay to have differences of opinion. We try to find different alternatives on how people could worship based on their preference during that season. But so many, I'm talking hundreds of people said we're out, which was shocking to me. The reason it was shocking to me, I was like, wait a minute, you got saved at this church. Your marriage was healed at this church and you're leaving over a very strong preference of mask or no mask. That creates divisiveness. And you can have strong opinions and you can make choices based on those strong opinions. But do we cross the line into divisiveness. Like in our DNA that we're going to go to, we're going to tell you it's okay to believe differently on a lot of the things. Just don't create division over things that are non-essential. There's going to be a lot of those things. We can agree to disagree and still move forward in unity. Now, let me press in just one more time. Here's what I know. If you find yourself going from relationship to relationship, workplace to workplace, and church to church, because of issues that you continue to find over a period of time, I need to challenge you that it may not be the issue. It may be something internal with you. What I mean by that is that sometimes we are triggered by things, people, and circumstances that is actually just revealing emotionally something deeper inside of us, usually a pain in the past or even childhood that we actually have not yet addressed. And so we find ourselves emotionally overreacting to something and creating division because of something we're still struggling with from within. So that's just be an encouragement. So here, let me ask you this question. What is a strong preference that you have that could or has hurt the opportunity for unified relationships in your life or ministry in the church? Start with your marriage. You'll realize that so much of the issue you have is actually more based on preference instead of the core issue underneath. If you can get to the core issue, it'll help so many things. So then the question becomes, then how can we strengthen unity? So we want to go back to what Paul is saying, because Paul gives us the secret to this. 
He says, I appeal to you again, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority, talk about laying it out. I'm trying to help you understand the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you subscribe to him, I'm trying to appeal to his authority in our lives to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, there it is, united in thought and purpose. So what is he saying? He says, first unite in relationships. Unite in relationships, harmony in the church. The secret to unity is prioritizing and fighting for relationship. Once we start not to trust each other, that begins to unspiral in effect in our relationship. I'll give you an example from our eldership. We have two meetings a month. One meeting, we rotate at each other's houses and we spend two to four hours only talking about our relationship with Christ and one another. We do our best to not talk about church. All we're doing is building relationship with Jesus at the center. Then at our next meeting, when we do actually have discussion and lively debate and differences of opinions and thoughts, it is so much easier to hear those things because I know their hearts and they know mine because we built relationship. This is what happens in relationships. It's at the core. We start mistrusting. We start, you know, uh, reading below the line of things instead of actually trusting because we've lost the heart of relationships. So that when we do have these fights, I'm sorry, in my household, they're called intense moments of fellowship. Uh, when we have those, you know, moments, uh, we, we have something that it's based on, something that it's built on. So unite in relationship, was what Paul's saying. The second thing is he says, unite in thought. Specifically, focus our minds on Jesus. That's what he says. Unite in your thought. Focus your mind, your purpose on Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Now, here's what's fascinating. For those of you who study the Bible, this verse gets pulled out of context. Paul is addressing unity in the church in the end of chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. It's the same thing. Notice what he says with that as the background. The message of the cross is foolishness, this is the same chapter, for those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scripture says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. What he's telling them is focus on the cross. Quit focusing on whether you follow Apollos or Paul or Peter. Focus on Christ and what he has done, the purpose of the cross. Go to chapter 2, verse 2. For I decided, this is still one thought. I know we have chapters and verses. They didn't have that when he wrote it. It was one continuous letter. Sometimes that can help when you're actually trying to understand what Paul's trying to say. Chapter 2, verse 2. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except for Christ Jesus, the one who was crucified. So it's not about me. It's not about Apollos. It's not about these people, these factions. It's about Christ and him crucified. And then jump to verse 16 of chapter two. For who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things. Why? Because we have the mind of Christ. He's going back to chapter one, verse 18, over and over and over again. Focus your mind, your thoughts on Jesus. That's what brings unity instead of what could divide us. That's a lot easier, isn't it? Our culture never does that. Never goes on social media or news and says, ah, let's create some division. They're always trying to find a way for Republicans and Democrats to get along, aren't they? You know, hey, at least we're called the United States of America. You know, wasn't that a good, good, good laugh, you know, that we've had? Instead of the divided states of America. At one point, we actually tried to find ways as a country to see where we had more in common than what we had against one another. But that doesn't sell. That doesn't get clicks. That doesn't get interest. 
2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we demolish arguments of every pretension and we set itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Jesus Christ. It's okay to have difference of opinion. Divisiveness is what kills. So we're supposed to unite in relationships, unite in our thought on Christ, and then unite in purpose is what Paul says. Unite in our purpose. Unite over the vision and mission of the church versus how to accomplish the mission and vision. One's a preference, one's an essential. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, so now we're in chapter 3, notice what Paul says, he's bringing the argument back again. After all, this is a different chapter, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? We are only God's servants through whom we believe the good news. Each of us did the work, there's our purpose, the work the Lord gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts, and Apollos is who watered it. But it was God who made it grow. It's not important who does the planting and who does the watering. Quit aligning yourself under leaders. Align yourself under Christ is what he's saying. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. The one who plants and the one who waters work together, notice this, with the same purpose. He's reiterating in chapter 3 what he said in 1 verse 18 once again. And both will be rewarded for their own hard work. Same thought. Now let's get closer to home. What, What is our vision? Our vision is to reach the world for Jesus one person at a time. Where in the world did we make up that idea? Jesus. Jesus is the one who said in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. This is what that means. Telling people about me everywhere. In our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in the Philippines, in Uganda, anywhere that God gives us an opportunity to witness for him to the ends of the earth. That's where we get that vision from. 1 Corinthians 9.22, number of chapters later, same book. Paul says, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Why do we do an indoor playground? Because it gives us an opportunity in our day and age to connect with new families who may not never step into the, the, the dark in the rooms of our church or our church services, but they will come because they care a lot about their kids especially in the wintertime when they have no place to go. The why behind the what is what's most important. Uh, our mission is to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ. Where do we get that idea? Jesus. He's the one that tells his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, I have been given all authority. Huh, that phrase sounds familiar. Paul just said, I plead with you by the authority of Jesus Christ. So he's repeating Jesus' words again in heaven and earth. Therefore, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. How do we do it? Baptize them. Why do we have a baptistry? Jesus' idea. Why are we lighting up the cross? That's our idea. That's the how. You know, just as a reminder, and the green dots, in case you missed that last week, we ran out of bulbs. Yes, we're trying to build a new cross. So the green dots represent two names now. You know, until we get to the end of September, we're going to see a lot of kids come back from middle school camp, made first time decisions, they're going to get baptized in him. What a great chance to invest in the next generation and fulfill this purpose that Jesus has given us as the church thousands of years later after he gave that mission to his disciples. Because our thought and purpose is about Jesus. 
Jesus tells his, tells his disciples, follow me and I'm gonna make you fishers of men. So, one last thing. When we go to Riverside, does that help the mission and vision? Yes, when we go to the Philippines, does it help the mission and vision? This is why we're encouraging people to say, is God calling you to go to Riverside? Is he calling you to say, you know what, I'm going to go there for a year. I live closer over there because I want to fulfill the mission and vision of Jesus in my community. And North Spokane needs another church because there's so many people moving in. We can't have enough churches that will reach to people and disciple people in Jesus' name. So we have a meeting on July 23rd, you know, an informational meeting to be able to go and just see, is that something you want to be a part of? Lastly, unity doesn't just happen. You got to protect it when it's happening as God's people. And yes, you have to confront it like Paul is doing with the church in Corinth when it's not. How do we do it? Let me just give you four ways because I am far out of time and I apologize. But I'm not going to be speaking the next couple of weeks, so I'm taking my time now. <laughs> so first, you'll have, your, you'll have the speaker which you like better. So that's what's going to happen. Uh, pray for yourself and our church to be united in Christ. That's the first thing. Join us and pray. Can you pray for that? That our church will continue to do so. Secondly, find ways to support your leaders, especially when you know that they're making a decision that everyone's going to agree with, like multiplying a group, like adding new members, like reaching other people, like serving. There's so many things that are like, ah, and like, like you're going to have a difference of opinion. Just don't create division. Maybe apologize to someone for when you gossiped, when you slandered, when you hindered unity because of a preference or a disagreement over an issue. Even if it was a strong one, it's an opportunity to heal relationships. Or lastly, maybe God's calling you to confront someone, someone else in love and sincere care for how they hurt unity in a relationship, a ministry, or a church. These are things that Paul does that he asks us to do as well. Here's what I can tell you. This is a church that we've done this fairly well because we've tried to hold on to this kind of unity and we have to fight for it. But in fighting for it, here's what I can tell you. God is doing things that I've never seen in my ministry experience. I look to the cross, I will never forget Easter. And be like, God, you are doing something. I look to some of you and I see how marriages have been helped. I look to some of you and be like, okay, addictions are being helped. I look to some of you and going, you're making a difference in your life, in your workplace and you never used to do before. God is doing amazing things. And you know what Satan wants to do? Destroy. And he knows his number one tool is to create an angst that then creates a strong preference that can create division as you make that strong preference an issue and it creates slander, gossip, malicious talk and behavior. And that's what Paul's trying to hit. And that's what he sets the stage for everything else he's gonna talk about. So that being said, let me pray. God, thank you so much for today and the opportunity, Lord, to just dive a little bit deeper you know, into, into this issue that took place thousands of years ago that still apply today. May we be individuals that seek to find and follow you. May we have unity with you at the center in our relationships, in our minds, and in purpose, whether we're inside this building or outside, may we represent you well and truly be uncommon. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.